Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It doesn't matter if you're a democracy or an autocracy, if you're seeking something like regime change, that's incredibly hard. That's usually very difficult to do using economic weapons alone. Even when used in conjunction with military force or covert actions, that's a tough one. What the US has the power to is to compel almost any company and almost any bank on planet Earth to say, you are not going to do business with this Russian company, you are not going to do business with this Russian bank. China just doesn't have that power uh, in any way, shape or form. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Helen Mitchell and Dirk van der Klee join Will Stoltz to examine the so-called unprecedented regime of economic sanctions targeting Russia following its invasion of Ukraine. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Helen, Dirk, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So I've been eager to speak with the two of you on the topic of economic sanctions because, you know, obviously the Western response to Russia's invasion in Ukraine has brought sanctions into a kind of sharp new focus. Um, And I think, but I think they also warrant us kind of uh, thinking in a more far-sighted way about the ramifications of, of um, the future of sanctions as a tool of statecraft. Um, but before we get to all that, I guess I was hoping to kind of set the scene with just some really basic questions. So firstly, what exactly are <laughs> sanctions and, and how do they work in practice? Yeah, I can jump in with that one. So I guess when I think of how do you know a sanction when you see it, because they do come in different, as you're mentioning, um, well, they do come in different forms these days. How do you know it when you see it? I think, you know, an interruption to sort of usual economic activity is probably a good broad definition. Um, but importantly with sanctions, you know, you know it when you see it because it's about, um, geopolitical, um, sort of objectives and policy. So it's economic actions, but for sort of foreign policy objectives, which makes it a bit different to, um, you know, economic activities for purely economic reasons. Um, and you can think of lots of different examples. You can think about um, import bans and tariffs, um, sort of unfavourable taxation measures. Uh, you can think about um, even sort of things like inspecting um, imports, you know, more than you usually would. So it's sort of – I think you can have formal sanctions um, and, you know, a boycott or an embargo like the US has on Cuba is a great example. And then you can have more informal sanctions um, that sort of slip between the lines a little bit. And, of course, you can have – uh, sanctions on a country, and then you can have sanctions on a person. Um, you can have sanctions on particular goods or financial flows, um, and then you can have sanctions on groups and entities. I mean, probably terrorism is a great example of that, of um, sort of sanctioning terrorist groups. So that's the sort of, I think, the broad spectrum these days. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's a pretty uh, good definition there. The only thing I'd add is when we think about sanctions, and this is obvious, but it's just worth saying, is we're really thinking the punishment sides when we're talking about the changes in economic behaviour. Um, obviously, in the broader economic statecraft literature, you have the positive side where you might try and induce, but when we're talking about sanctions, really just talking on the punishment side. That's a good point. And I think, um, and that's actually, Dirk, what I would be interested. So you could also have um, a carrot, you know, a sort of a, an inducement that is then taken away, and we can think of that as a as a sanction or a punishment as well, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's all, it is often two sides yes. of the same coin. Once, <laughs> once, and just think of the China Australia Free Trade Agreement exactly. here. Trade opens, but of course that does open you up to punishments down the line if someone cho- so chooses to do so. So carrot sticks always two sides of the same coin. But today we're really thinking about the punishment side of that coin. Yeah. So I guess getting to um, the specific set of sanctions that we've all been thinking and talking about in relation to to the um, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So I guess in the initial period of response, there was kind of a lot of commentary, and I suppose even coming from myself included, that the sanctions weren't really enough. They weren't really proportionate to what was um, uh, being undertaken by Russia. But then there's been a shift to being uh, – to, to a lot of commentary saying that many of the new measures that are being undertaken are unprecedented in nature and um, are subjecting a kind of um, a new level of pain on on the Russian economy. I guess I'd be interested to know from you two what you would identify as being the unprecedented measures that have been taking uh, been taken and and why you would consider them a bit of a big deal. Okay, um, that's a really good question. And while I was thinking about this podcast, I kind of had a look at all the various different things that had happened. I tried to condense what's already happened down into five dot points. So I'm just going to go through them one by one, and I'll mention what's new, what's not there. So the first thing we've seen is asset freezes for banks and individuals. That's obviously for Russians, um, particularly their assets overseas. That's not new in itself. Uh, That's been happening to Russia already for some time. What we've seen is a vast increase in the number of people that have been affected and the number of banks and also the number of companies that have been affected. So the the size and the scope there is different and new, but that actual particular tool being used against um, parts of the Russian economy is not new. We already had it from 2014 with the annexation of Crimea, um, but that is much bigger than before. Uh, The second thing that we've seen is blocking of access to capital and debt. So if you're now a Russian bank and you want to raise capital on international markets, it's much harder to do. That's been a US-led intervention, but the EU's got on board as well. Once again, it has happened before, but we're just seeing it at a much bigger scale than we've seen uh, elsewhere. The third thing uh, that we've seen is the expanding entity list. So if you want to uh, sell technology to a Russian firm um, or to a firm on the entity list and you're a US company, you need to get a license for that. If you're a foreign company that uses a significant amount of US IP, you also need to get a license for that as well. The number of Russian companies on the entity list has expanded rapidly in the last week or two. Uh, so once again, the tool itself is not new, just how much it's being used has really uh, increased. The fourth one we've seen is uh, kicking a bunch of Russian banks off SWIFT. That hasn't happened too often to my knowledge. Now, maybe um, Helen has some examples where that hasn't, that hasn't happened to, in my knowledge too often. And given all the other controls, I'm not sure how significant it will be Um, But if it was just to happen by itself, it would be significant. Now, there's alternative options there, but SWIFT is really the most dominant sort of – it's a telegram messaging service. So if you're a bank in Australia, you want to wire money to somewhere else, um, you'll use the SWIFT messaging service generally. There are alternatives, but that's the major one. So that will just make it much harder for Russian banks to do business elsewhere. But there's already so many limits that that might – 
be the case. And not every bank has been kicked off that. I should add that's only it's only certain banks. And then the final one is the freezing uh, of the assets of the Russian central bank, which for a large economy, in my knowledge, is unprecedented. We've seen it with Iran, Venezuela, Syria, North Korea previously. But for an economy that's as integrated and, and sizable as the Russian economy, we haven't seen that. And there's a huge amount, hundreds of billions of dollars of Russian central bank assets overseas um, that's going to be very hard for them to access that. So they're the sort of five dot points. The last one really is new for a big economy. The first four, it's just a, a, a massive expansion of what we've seen before. And combined together, it's been a very long time since we've seen something of that size directed at a major economy. I'd agree. So I think um, the US has form for, for example, targeting the Central Bank of Iran before um, and in the case of Iran also using the SWIFT system. Um, but, you know, in this case, I think sort of unanimity of um, the European countries is is probably where it's warranted to to use the word unprecedented. That's been very impressive. Um, and also bringing on other partners like um, Japan, you know, that's helped ensure that, you know, the effect of targeting, um, you know, sort of, you know, weaponizing US dollar dominance and being able to sort of target the central bank and, um, you know, Russia's banking system it's been really important to have those other partners on board so that, you know, um, there's no loopholes. So Russia can't just jump um, to using Japanese yen or the euro. You know, it's really been a – that's been sort of unprecedented to my mind. Mm. Yeah. I'm interested to know, you know, for, for economies like Russia's and I suppose China's also relevant to this conversation, economies that are based on, you know, state-controlled capitalism, does that degree of kind of centralised control by the state, do you think that – does that give the states a, a greater degree of resilience in terms of being able to harden themselves to economic sanctions or or does it perhaps make it easier for sanctions to hurt the government because of the extent to which government officials themselves are actually involved in the economy? I suppose it must be a balance, I'm assuming, but I'd be interested in your take on that. Yeah, I mean, fantastic question. And I mean, I think, you know, if we did have the – that's a million-dollar question if we had a clear answer to that. But what I will say is that there's sort of a burgeoning sanctions academic literature and what we have learned from that – um, is that in general, it's true, I think, that democratic countries um, are probably a bit easier to target. Uh, but what it's really tied up in, what's really tricky about sort of evaluating sanctions effectiveness is that it really depends on what the policy goal is. Um, so I think possibly we might have seen uh, sanctions work well against democracies in the past because the policy goals there were fairly modest or because the country that was um, sort of sending the sanctions um, was fairly friendly with the country um, target. And in that case, there's a lot, the dynamics are really interesting because they're thinking about, you know, future interactions and the relationship more broadly, and they'll probably respond fairly positively. So, you know, if you think about the literature suggests that autocratic regimes have a bit more resilience. Um, they sort of assume that in those um, <clears throat> markets, you do have a degree of strong political vested power among leaders and the elites. Um, and in those cases, they can kind of shore up their resources. They're not as vulnerable to voter pressure. You know, that's the sort of standard um, sort of political answer to that question. I think, though, it really depends uh, case to case and it really depends on what the sort of um, what the sort of policy goal is. So if you're looking, so basically it doesn't matter if you're a democracy or an autocracy, if you're seeking something like regime change, that's incredibly hard. That's usually very difficult to do using economic weapons alone. Even when used in conjunction with military force or covert actions, that's a tough one. Uh, that's that's sort of my feeling about that. So I'm going to take it from a slightly different perspective. Uh, first things first, um, 
the goals are what really matters here. If you're t- thinking in a, po- in a policy sense, the harder the goal, the harder the achievement. That even includes, as Helen said, military things, but also even if you're using positive inducements, all sorts of things, goes without saying. When I think about the effectiveness of sanctions, I sort of do it in three steps. So the first one is I think, does the targeted economy actually hurt? Uh, so if the, if the target if there's no pain on the targeted economy, then we don't need to worry about policy goals because they're not going to be effective. Um, what I would say about that is I don't think it matters so much whether you're an autocracy or a democracy or something else. It matters the makeup of your economy. And I'm going to draw on the sort of China-Australia case here where China loaded a lot of trade sanctions on Australia like in various ways. And at a macro sense, I've been pretty ineffective because what Australia sells, we can sell elsewhere. Um, we have a pretty resilient economy that's, you know, open, sells all over the world. Um, and I think if you were to sort of try and do targeted sanctions on a, a country like China, who has lots of exports as well, in a small scale, you'd have the same issue as well. Uh, and they've also got a lot more exports than we do. So I think it depends more on the makeup of the economy as to whether the economic sanctions hurt economically. Going to the second, which is the policy goal, which Helen's already covered, so I'm not going to add much more there, that the goal depends, the heart of the goal really really is hard. And uh, when we're thinking about backing down from wars, um, that's an incredibly tough goal that we're asking there. And I think the, the likelihood of success in this case is very small. The third part is, well, okay, if the policy, if we do see economic pain and we don't see policy goal changes, does it have a deterrent effect on other countries? And so I think once again, at the China-Australia case, I think it probably is having a deterrent effect on countries in Southeast Asia. Um, they they see what happens if you do things that China doesn't want. Now, this is incredibly hard to measure. So this is why the academic literature doesn't do this as much. Um, because if we think in terms of China and Taiwan, you could say China's been effectively deterred for 70 years, partially because of military reasons, um, partially because of economic reasons as well. And there would be a deterrent message, I think, that's being sent to China here. Obviously, I have no insight as to what Xi Jinping thinks um, oh, damn. about this. I we are going to solve <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be uh, here. I'd be on, on a luxury yacht somewhere. You'd be targeting my oligarchic yachts. Um, but what, what I mean is uh, you, you could easily see how that would be a deterrent for a future action uh, in Taiwan. So that's, that's the, the part that's very difficult to measure. And I think the fact that US-led sanctions in conjunction with the EU is so powerful, that will send a message to countries around the world as well. I think that's right. And I like your three-step framing. And I would just add to that the sort of um, we could overlay a, a sort of a time frame on that. And what's been really interesting about um, these actions um, with respect to Russia and Ukraine has been that this has been a sort of, you know, a purposeful sledgehammer, right? This has been go for maximum impact really fast. This hasn't been a kind of a long, drawn-out bleeding of the economy because what we've seen in the past is that's not very effective because economies are dynamic and they adapt. Um, And you can have an economy, for example, I think Iran's a great example of this, that was not very diversified pre-sanctions. So most of its government revenue came from oil exports. It was very much a sort of um, a petro economy. And then over time, it's actually adapted. It's been incredibly impactful for Iranians and it's been very difficult, um, you know, the economic pain leading to, you know, health effects and, you know, it literally does lead to death. Um, but the economy has adapted. It's now much more diversified. You know, Russia's in a different position. It started off more diversified, even though it is a very important, as we know, energy exporter on world markets. It's also an important commodity exporter. You know, Russia and Ukraine together actually account for about 30% of global wheat exports. So that's not insignificant either. But the point is, if you sort of do it over time, economies adapt, they change. Um, you know, going for maximum impact right away is, is, I mean, you know, it's the best you can do, certainly on the economic side. And then you 
you bring in those other tools in concert, you know, diplomacy and um, the sort of the kinetic action. And that's, you know, that's what we know from previous experience gives you the best possible chance. Though completely agree with Dirk, at the end of the day, you know, if a leader really wants to do something and is hell-bent on war, which might be the case with Putin, then there's possibly very little you can do um, using economic sanctions alone. Similar point. Russia will eventually find a way to adapt here, uh, even though they've had all those things at once. They will. Who knows how long it will take? There'll be a little bit of a period of sort of instability, but they will eventually find a way to adapt, um, regardless. And, and we do have to expect that. And so the effectiveness of these as a leverage, if we just stick with the current tools that we have now, will probably steadily diminish over time. Mm. Um, That's interesting. Okay. No, I mean, and I really want to dive in further into the, the long-term strategic implications in a second, but I wanted to draw your attention and get your response to just one other aspect of the, the Russia-Ukraine um, situation, I suppose, has been struck me as quite interesting, which is the economic pain that Russia is experiencing because individual businesses are making their own decisions to withdraw from Russian markets. So some of these include, um, and the list is quite long, but just some examples, Boeing, PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, and then consumer brands like Disney, Nike, Spotify, um, and EA Games. So no new Star Wars video games for Russia, which, you know, <laughs> if it was me, I'd be pretty upset about. But And I'm not sure if those things necessarily characterize sanctions per se because they're not being conducted by the state. But is, I mean, is your response to individual businesses essentially, um, you know, do, what do you think about this this idea of individual businesses kind of participating in geopolitics in this kind of proactive way? Well, my response would be that's how the global market works and that mm. comes down to sort of interdependencies. It comes down to risk aversion. So the thing that's interesting about sanctions is there's the sanctions themselves and the actions that they um, sort of, you know, the set of events, the chain of events that unfold from them and then there's the greater chilling effect on uh, economic activity with that country um, and especially when the US is involved because of how important the US dollar is for transactions and for the functioning of the global economy, it can have a, an amazing sort of a freezing effect um, on all trade and financial flows with the country. And so com- basically companies are just reacting to incentives would be, I mean, this mm, is, okay. sorry, just to be the economist, of course they are. Um, but, that you know, th- they're seeing the writing on the wall and they're very worried about what could happen if they breach sanctions. Um, and also, I mean, there's also the, you know, the horrible human element to all of this. Um, and in some cases, it's also just wanting to respond to the atrocity that's unfolding. Um, but, you know, I think in, in, I would say more often it's a bottom line financial consideration. You know, they're worried about what could happen if they do breach a sanction just to be extra careful, you know, and, and this is what has greater long-term implications for the Russian economy because, you know, this interesting thing of the US using export controls on software and products from the US, you know, so this could mean things like blocking off the export of semiconductors or parts needed for semiconductors, you know, which is so important for foundational or critical technology. It means that, um, you know, Russia's long-term sort of expertise, you know, its ability, for example, to be a great, um, you know, energy exporter and innovator, um, you know, could be severely diminished. That's, that's, and, and, you know, that comes into strategic considerations beyond Putin. And that's where it gets interesting because you've got to think about the people surrounding Putin and what they're looking at seeing businesses react in this way. And they're sort of, you know, that divestment from the country essentially. And then you've also got to think about what's happening on the ground. You know, it's very unpopular, I'm sure, to not be able to use Apple 
Pompeii, at the metro station and all these things that are happening to Russian people, um, and although there's a, obviously a very strong degree of control from um, from Putin and the Kremlin, um, you know, if you do sow those seeds of political dissent well enough, mm. you know, that's where you can actually see a change. You know, um, I use the example of uh, Iran because it's a very useful um, sort of parallel in this context, even though they're, they're very different economies and situations. But in Iran, it's been very much a case that the Iranian leadership has been able to actually ferment anti-US sentiment um, and it's actually hijacked and harnessed the sanctions to do that, you know, and said, look what the US is doing to us. You know, in Russia, what's interesting is I think because it's not just the US, it's in concert with other um, partners and because it has been this sort of maximum impact and critically because it's involving Ukraine and many, many Russian people have strong ties to Ukraine, you know, some of them are blood ties. Um, that's where it's going to be interesting to see just how politically fragile and how brittle the system is in Russia in responding to that because they're literally seeing the effects, uh, you know, on their, on their hip pockets straight away of these sanctions. And part of it, you're absolutely right, Will, is, is the fact that, you know, companies are piling on because they're seeing the writing on the wall. Ooh, can I use that word unprecedented here? <laughs> <laughs> um, so both of you make the point. It, it is unprecedented in my mind. It's been a, in a very, very long time. We haven't seen so many companies jump on like this, particularly for a large economy. It's different for small economies, but for a large economy, um, there's that chilling, chilling effect that Helena ma- ma- mentioned that is just we're worried that we might somehow breach US sanctions. That's going to that's gonna have implications for our global brand. Um, the second part is the the brand managing aspect that she mentioned as well. I say this is a major economy. Yes, it is, but it's still a sort of major compared to Iran, not major compared to China. Um, yeah. And it's a little easier to be worried about those things when it's it's going to hit your hurt your hip pocket in a still relatively speaking small way. Um, so I, I'd be interested to see if there'd be so much concern. Uh, around brand if it was going to take 30 or 40% of the market share like might happen in a China contingency. And here, Will, I'm going to just slightly segue into a um, into a bigger picture. What we're seeing here is just how powerful – so we talk a lot about in Australia, um, you know, Chinese economic coercion, and we've seen in a very clear way how powerful US economic coercion is compared to Chinese economic coercion. When China uses economic coercion, it uses trade because it's a, it's a major trading power. It's not a major financial power. It uses it in a bilateral way generally, like it it it, yeah. it stops, it makes it hard for Australia to sell goods to China. Um, same with Taiwan or with um, Korea. You've seen the same thing again, or, or blocks access to tourists. Uh, what the US has the power to is to compel almost any company and almost any bank on planet earth to say, you are not going to do business with this Russian company. You are not going to do business with this Russian bank. Um, In this case, we're talking Russia here. China just doesn't have that power uh, in any way, shape or form. And it really, if, if they wanted to, or even Russia wants to get out from under these sanctions, it's just so, so difficult where in the Chinese case that we see, um, we see it's very bilateral. They tried Luxembourg's been their first foray into Using third countries where where they were saying um, to German German companies you, you shouldn't use anything from Luxembourg if you want to sell into the Chinese market. That's their first little foray. I expect to see more of this, but they just don't really have the power to do that now. And so the, the point being here that the US, particularly when it acts in concert with others, has huge coercive powers that we just don't see from China, which is the country we think of in Australia as that big coercive. Um, capable country. 
I actually completely agree with you, Dirk, but just I think because we're on a podcast. Go ahead. Can I play devil's advocate for a minute? Okay, so we could also, I, I totally agree with that, but we could also see a world where China's importance in supply chains and its ability to reach into its companies, it literally has a law that says it's allowed to do that and then sort of direct their activities so it can cut off investment. Those That's what you're referring to, I know, Dirk. Um, and, of course, you know, it doesn't have the same level of transparency as countries like the US in terms of how it uses what might be called sort of aid funding um, or other aid goods. You know, we saw in the pandemic the way they kind of weaponized in some ways um, sending PPE and um, other sort of um, humanitarian goods. You know, it has those the the way that it has such a sort of um, you know centralized control um, of its government and its economy. You know, it, it has special tools that the U.S. doesn't have. And you could, you know, playing devil's advocate, you could argue that the more the U.S. uses its sanctions, you know, it it does risk uh, diminishing U.S. dollar dominance and preeminence in global markets because. Countries adapt, they find new ways to get around sanctions, you know, uh, countries might start looking at blockchain technologies or they might start looking at more illicit trade options to evade sanctions or not not even illicit, you know, it could be, um, you know, above board trade with another country. We could see Russia and China, you know, sort of looking to each other as new trade partners to, to avoid US sanctions. I actually totally agree with you, Dirk. I actually don't think US dollar dominance is going to end um, overnight and I don't think these options are realistic enough yet. But we could see over time China, you know, it's natural. It's like in kinetic conflict. You watch when a conflict plays out and you learn um, and you think about what would happen to you in that situation. And in the meantime, you develop um, resiliency and you develop new capabilities and ways of doing things, um, you know, in response. So I think we can think of economic warfare here as not being very different to to military um, in the sense of um, watching and learning and and creating your own tools. And some in some ways in economic warfare, this can happen faster mm. than it can. I mean, just look at what's going on in our debate about, um, you know, submarines at the moment. And, and we're talking 30, 40 year timeframes, you know, in economics, you can actually with with global markets and with things like, you know, flow of goods and, and financial transactions, you can sort of innovate very quickly. So, oh, can I jump in, Will? Okay. <laughs> no, I no, no, um, agree with you. Uh, as uh, I think there's a term here that I like to use called use it and lose it. So if you use an economic tool, you do have to have that concern that you might lose it, although the US has used this tool a lot and hasn't lost it yet. That's um, right. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and I think we're in agreement on that. Yeah, I think yeah. at the end of the day, it's got it's you know it's so central to global markets. I mean, basically, the US has the Fed. It has the Federal mm. Reserve. And it, as we saw in the pandemic, it's the global lender of last resort. And that is an amazing power that it has in its toolkit. And I think it's slowly, you know, there are elements of national security sort of apparatus in the US that are slowly starting to realise. I mean, there, there'll be people there who knew that all the time, but it's really coming to the fore just how important that weapon is for the United States. Mm. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Going to your point about resiliency, about states wanting to make themselves resilient to this type of economic statecraft, is it possible that as a result of what we're seeing against Russia and this kind of I guess new strategic utility that economic power seems to have for the West that it is going to drive perhaps, I mean, maybe this is a bit overdramatic, but does it create a downward pressure on globalization itself that countries will actually want to kind of um, make themselves more self-sufficient in more and more um, uh, supplies and resources in their economy so that they can become more resilient to economic measures? Or is that is that perhaps over-egging the, the impact? I have a pretty simple answer to that question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think that's right. And I think so. I think all of this stems from great power competition and a more contested geostrategic environment than we've seen in decades. Um, and I think that's that's a natural response. I don't know what you think, Dirk. Yes, within limits. Mm. Uh, so maybe a slight little bit of disagreement. And once again, just thinking forward a little bit. Um, absolutely. I mean, you, you see the discussions in all the advanced economies around the world. They're talking about self-sufficiency in a way they haven't before. Now, how far they go, we don't know because there is a cost associated with that that, that consumers will have to bear mm. and we'll see how much they're going to be willing to accept that. Uh, one thing that that sort of strikes me that goes a little bit against that, I guess, uh, just thinking in some of the emerging economies, particularly Southeast Asia and our region, um, they're still talking a lot about the terms in terms of integration um, in, within ASEAN, we've seen RCEP, we've seen CPTPP, uh, which which does involve some level of integration. We're still seeing large-scale infrastructure being built across the region to try and connect it more closely. And when I think about how China might respond to what we've seen uh, in Russia, I, I sort of think about a world where they look to move some of their industrial capability to other parts of Asia Um when, when when countries move out of China because they're too expensive to making sure that they're not going to the West, um, that they're going to other countries that are at least neutral uh, in some of these discussions. And we've seen in Russia that that very few Southeast Asian countries have have implemented the sanctions or followed the sanctions that that um the the, the rich economies have. Uh, so I think yes, we will see a lot more self sufficiency. But at the same time, as that we're still seeing global supply chains across Asia stay relatively tight and they haven't broken up completely in the way that you might 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 expect to start to see. So we've seen all those things, you know, all the industrial policy going on, um, but we have, have seen some areas where that doesn't look like it's happening just yet. Mm. That's a really good point. Um, well, can I pick up on something you mentioned in your question? You sort of said that maybe economic uh, weapons um, or measures have a sort of higher strategic utility these days. I guess I just wanted to pick up on that because I would – I would disagree with that. I think, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is sort of World War One, mm, mm. and, you know, the Allies using the blockade against Germany mm. to block off um, or restrict, severely restrict maritime supply of goods. That that's considered that was considered an extremely effective um, measure. Of course, as always, it was used in conjunction with other measures, yeah. and we know that in that situation, um, you know, goals were different and there was a lot going on. Um, but I think what it goes to, uh, you know, I think it's not so much that um, economic measures have more strategic utility these days. I think it's that, you know, we don't have, especially in countries like the US and Australia, we don't have that appetite for war that we're used to. We don't mm. want to put troops on the ground nearly as often or in the water, you know, or in the air. 
And I think that, you know, economic weapons are seen as a more palatable, um, you know, easier um, tool to use. The, the thing that's, you know, a bit ironic and sad about that is that economic weapons can have just as devastating effects. Um, it might be more drawn out. It might be more insidious. It might take longer. Um, but they can also cause, um, mm. you know, deep human misery. Anyway, uh, it's to say that, um, yeah, I, I think we should maybe, you know, just see this in historical context. You know, economic weapons have been used for quite a long time. Um, you can go back to ancient Athens, yeah. Peloponnesian War. Yeah. Uh, they were using economic coercion. Salting Carthage. You yes, know. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So so it's not a new concept. Yeah. Um, but perhaps we're seeing um, popularity of these yeah. tools um, sort of rise in some countries. Uh, it, you know, Putin's a... He's a clear example of, you know, um, a modern example of uh, someone willing to go to war and, and not really being worried about the political consequences of that, at least for now. So it's not that it's disappeared, but in some countries where we're seeing um, t- these tools as being more popular than outright warfare. Yeah. And you mentioned the the fact that economic sanctions traditionally in kind of Western theory have sat in our minds as being, you know, below below the threshold of of warfare. But I'm I'm interested to get your take on the potential because you mentioned the extent of harm that can now be generated by economic measures. Have we have we kept our perceptions of economic uh, statecraft proportionate to risks of escalation? Because I've noted that that Vladimir Putin has said, like in recent in recent times, that um, he regards the economic measures as an act of war. I mean, we've traditionally thought of it as below that threshold, but but do we need to now look at economic sanctions in a bit of a, a new light and perhaps take in the risks of it generating conventional escalation? Or is that just kind of posture and blustering bluster on his part? Well, no, no. So I'll no. jump in. Yeah. Um, I think it's a little bit different when you're already at war. Mm. Um, that all of a sudden any tool gets used is, is seen as part of a broader war effort. Uh, so I, I think that is understandable actually in this position given that the West is basically responding to an invasion, or an act of war with these economic tools. Mm. So it's all part and parcel. Um, I think generally, more generally speaking, over the last 30 years, we've seen a lot of use of economic sanctions, but they've tended to be quite surgical. Mm. And this is the first time where we've gone back really and it's gone outside of Iran and, and North Korea, but with, with a, with, between major powers where it's gone from surgical to you know blunt force trauma, which is really what we're seeing here. And that is, that is sort of a, an act that is designed to cripple the economy. So I, I think we're seeing a much higher level of use of these, and that would be concerning, I think, to a number of countries around the world that are sort of ideologically aligned with Russia. So uh, to answer your question, uh, which is the tough tough bit here, <laughs> I sort of flapped around in front of that, but I, I would say um, I think we need to think of them as both. Mm. Uh, so in peacetime, surgical is where, where we can. Uh, when, it, when it does come to war, I mean, we are thinking of using these as quickly as possible because otherwise their utility goes down. And so it is part of the toolkit and pro- the preferred part to our toolkit, but it could, of course, we're, we're supplying weapons to Ukraine. And if, if something was to happen in East Asia, uh, I think, you know, US allies would be expected to make some military comp- um, contribution as well. So I think it's a bit of both. If if it's wartime, then it's, you know, it is part of the war toolkit that we have. If it's peacetime, it's generally more surgical and much more simpler. So that's that's a, a way to glide around your question without having to answer it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think I would just say that in any conflict, the goalposts move quickly, yeah. you know, and that question of sort of what does Putin want, it might look very different today than it did 10 days ago. Um, the same with the countries that are applying the sanctions. Um, so in terms of sort of, um, you know, is it an act of war? I mean, the lines are moving and I think we're learning a lot as we go with this. And obviously, you know, we're alluding to um, sort of um, parallels with China-Taiwan and all of this is being noted um, around the world in, in that sense and we're learning what is and isn't considered an act of war here. Mm. I think the difficulty we have is that, um, you know, Dirk, quite rightly talking about peacetime, I think the problem is for the last um, sort of, you know, five to ten years, we've sort of been living in peacetime, but have we really? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sort of yeah. been, you know, uh, in a way, um, you know, Putin has just um, put it out there and we're back to sort of old old style outright warfare, but we've sort of been living in this um, difficult peace and wondering who is going to win the peace, mm. um, uh, you know, for for a longer period than that. And, and that's where economic tools are sort of so useful. Uh, mm. <laughs> um, but in some ways, maybe you might even um, hark back to those times and think it was easier when things were a bit more overt um, and, and you could see lines in the sand and talk about red lines more clearly. So I'd just say I think... You know, we're living in shades of grey these days, not black and white. And sanctions are, this is a really interesting test run, I guess, um, when you think about the China context for what is a, is not considered an act of war. Um, so I think, you know, history is being written um, at the moment with this. But I suppose it's recent events have really emphasised how much, kind of, as, as you've both acknowledged, how much economic statecraft is, is really central to um, Western responses to international crises. But what strikes me as perhaps odd if I think about Australian strategic planning documents and and even things like, um, you know, the recent UK integrated um, review, the US um, national security strategies, economic measures, economic statecraft often doesn't feature as part of Western strategic planning, but it seems to be quite a, you know, tool of first resort. So would I be, is it naive to suggest that it needs to become a greater part of our strategy making or does that, some, does that somewhat undercut a free market economy to really build economic measures into a centralised plan? Great question. And I think the answer to that depends on where you sit in the, you know, in the bureaucracy in different mm. countries as to how they would answer that question. So I think in a country like Russia, they're probably a bit more seamless at mm. working um, economic weapons in lockstep um, with other types of um, warfare. That would be my guess. Um, you know, I think you're right that we can probably say in sort of the last 30 or 40 years in a country like Australia, um, efficiency concerns have sort of been separated a little bit. Um, sort of the liberalist agenda might have um, seen, you know, treasury officials um, sort of very focused on on their goals um, and running the economy well and, and maximising benefits for Australians of, of our sort of, you know, trade and investment overseas. And that would have been seen as a bit more separate from, uh, you know, people who sit around and, and plan defence and think about our borders. I would first of all say, I mean, that's clearly changing, even in sort of, you know, recent white papers, you know, for foreign affairs and for defence, we can see uh, more sort of suggestive language um, about how trade agreements and important investment partnerships work in lockstep with our foreign policy goals. Um so, I, you know, and there must be lots going on um, behind the scenes to that. But I think in the US as well, we're actually seeing that that's changing a little bit. Um, you know, there was even around the time that they were talking about, you know, who would be the head of the Fed, you know, um, they were thinking a lot about somebody who knew about the mm. situation with China and was thinking about the trade war implications. So I would say that's probably been changing, although I would, um, I think the premise of your question is sound in that I think we probably had a period of um, some 30, 40, maybe more years where 
um, you didn't think as much about the economists being in the same room as mm. the deep sort of military strategists and, um, you know, your um, other type of sort of defensive planners. But I, I, my guess is that's that's probably changing a bit. And I, I would say for the better, I think that the new environment we're in, we can't afford to be sitting in different towers and, um, you know, this is such an economist answer, but you've got to think about all the costs and all the benefits. So mm. not just um, what are the costs of, say, going to war, but what are the foregone opportunities of doing that too. Economists are great at that. And then, of course, what we really need on the defence and strategic side of things is, okay, um, but what does this mean for, you know, um, you know, um, sea channels, you know, lines of communication and what does this mean for protecting our border and what does this mean for red lines for the US and China in certain parts of the world? This is, it all mm. needs to be a, a sort of more joined up conversation. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Nice leading question, Will. Um, <laughs> when you're speaking to someone who studies geoeconomics for a living, um, I agree with everything that Helen said. I would add a couple of things. Um, firstly, I think we're now getting, when we think of these integrated responses, we're thinking, you know, still thinking of free trade agreements sometimes, like CPTPP is is the one that, you know, gets bandied about here as, as a way that we can um, shape the Indo-Pacific economic order. Um, so, so we're still thinking free trade agreements, which is still a little bit of um, that integrative thinking, like integrated world thinking, even slightly neoliberal thinking in the way we're going. And I don't, don't think we're quite, that's where the world is actually going. So I think it's not a case of we, we now recognize that geoeconomics, economic statecraft, really important. It gets mentioned in all the right papers and we're talking about people that should be meeting. I'm just not sure that we've quite cottoned on to how the world is actually changing. Um, so yeah, the resiliency discussions there. We are now doing a fair bit, I think, on thinking about when we can punish, um, you know, sanctions at what stages. I'm sure that there are people inside defense and other parts that are thinking about, well, what happens if, if there's a war in Taiwan? What are we going to do about iron? Are we going to still sell iron ore to China, for example? That, I'm sure that kind of discussion is happening. Where we might be missing a fair bit, I think, is still this positive element to try and shape the the world uh, in the way that we want. We still think about aid in, a, in very traditional terms. Uh, I know we have B3W now. I know we have the Digicel um, intervention with Telstra, but we are not thinking big picture enough to know how, how do we shape our region in a really positive way in a jobs and development sense that helps those countries and also helps us. We're, we're quite reactive and often thinking about you know preaching security to these countries and we're, we're not integrating that enough. And that's where I think we're really missing a few tricks at the moment. So it's it's not a case of silos anymore, I don't think. I, know, I don't think it's a case of recognition of the problem. I just think we haven't quite understood how the challenges are actually going to play out and we're probably not forward-leaning enough on that. Yeah. yeah. DFAT's sort of funding situation would suggest that that's, that, yeah, that that's right, Doc, that it's not getting funded enough to do some of those things you're talking about. Um, and I think, you know, this is also a shout-out to um, anyone listening that um, is sort of thinking about where to take their life and in what direction. And, I mean, we need more integrated thinkers who can, um, you know, think, I think, from an economic perspective and a strategic perspective. Um, I think that, you know, we can no longer just be sort of, you know, I'm the economist that sits and thinks about efficiency all day. You know, we need more people that can do a bit of, a bit of you know, a jack-of-all-trades or Jill of all trades and do a bit of all those things. And really a bit of imagination. Yes, um, definitely. A little bit of ima imagination. I know it's easy to sit here when I don't have to do the policy. It's really <laughs> great. Um, but I, I do think, um, to be honest, if we're th just talking about China has shown itself to be more imaginative um, with its positive economic policies and the integration sometimes than we have been, um, even though we now actually recognize the problem in, I, th I think, in writ large across the, across the community. If I go and speak to any major department here, 
they're going to say, you know, the way economic statecraft is being used is a real challenge for us, mm. and we need to think about that. But that's 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 I think already front and center of the conversation. Yeah, and and certainly I guess having people that appreciate the, as you've both kind of described the carrot and the stick element to economic power. Mm. Like we don't talk about it very often, but there's still that thing, soft power, that idea of actually having yeah the positive positive shape. I don't think influence. carrots are soft power. I think <laughs> they're still they're still hard power. You're still putting money on the table. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, anyway. <laughs> but this is a spruik for your podcast as well, Will. I mean, this is exactly, you know, bringing imaginative people like Dirk and yourself in and, and talking to hopefully a somewhat um, policy-oriented audience as well is really, really useful. It can be hard. I've worked in policy before and you can sometimes feel that there's a bit of a straitjacket and that you mm. just have to kind of, um, you know, get through the sort of immediate um, and you also really have to think big picture, think imaginatively, imagine different worlds in which um, many different actions can play out. Um, it's something actually I'm trying to do in my research is sort of imagine and then roll back from that to now mm. and think about what actions can we take now. Completely agree with Dirk. I think that's something that can be done really well, um, both by us and also um, by um, people we're not so friendly with. So, you know, mm. we, we have to be doing that too. And, and of course we are, but um, more of that would, would be good. Well, I think given that that's quite an uplifting note to end a podcast that's otherwise been quite <laughs> a bit dark, I think we should end the conversation on that point. So Helen, Dirk, thanks so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.